Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I think it is very important that we as Christians, as the people of God, do mark these moments in history. And this evening we are considering the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't about God being fair. The gospel is about God being generous. And on this day, God's generosity overflows in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well wrote the songwriter when he penned these words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. When ancient times shall pass away and human thrones and kingdoms fall, When those who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong. Grace will resound the whole earth round the saints and angels song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Frederick Lehman is the author of this song, The Love of God. Sometime around 1917, Lehman heard an evangelist end his message by quoting what became the third stanza of Lehman's song, The Love of God. I will recite it once more. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The preacher said that these lines had been found penciled on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum after he had been carried to his grave. The assumption was that this inmate had scratched out the words in moments of sanity. The identity of that incarcerated prisoner is unknown but it is now recognized that his scribbled message was adapted from an 11th century acrostic Jewish poem written in the Aramaic language. It was composed in the years around 1050 to 1096 AD by a Jewish rabbi and cantor in the city of Worms, Germany. Thus we have the third stanza to that incredible song. The Apostle Paul will call this moment in time the fullness of time in Galatians 4.4. When you think of Matthew's gospel, we know that the general thrust of Matthew's gospel is to establish that Jesus Christ to the Hebrews is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scripture. The Greek New Testament lists approximately 68 Old Testament references cited in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's intent is to show us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament text. In addition, the technical expression, it is written, occurs nine times inside of Matthew's gospel. It is employed in the sense of it stands written and is used to express the authority and present validity of what was written. 
And 12 times Matthew cites Old Testament prophecy in conjunction with the term fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, was fulfilled, is fulfilled, should be fulfilled. Everything in Matthew's gospel points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all Old Testament promise, pattern, picture, and prophecy. Jesus is the Messiah. Before we go any further, please let us pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, ears, minds, and will to embrace this moment in time as we remember the crucifixion of our Lord. Father, he became for us the sin-bearer. Whomever Jesus is, we know that Matthew sees him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Something is coming to an end in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would help us to appreciate what we do read in this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read for us Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. If Passion Week is a song, then this paragraph that we have just read would be a stanza within that song. And within this stanza, there are five notes. And in our study, I want us to see the five singular notes and ask ourselves why. Why is each of the notes sounded inside the paragraph exceptional? And the five notes are these. The darkness, noted in verse 45, the cries seen in verses 46 through 50, being forsaken, and it is finished, and the signs in verses 51 through 53, then the confession in verse 54, and the witnesses noted in verses 55 and 56. So we'll consider each of these five notes. First, the darkness. It's noted in verse 45. From the sixth hour, noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three o'clock, there was darkness in the land. Why is this darkness exceptional? Now, I personally believe that the darkness is literal darkness. Whether it was localized or global, it was still miraculous. The sun was shut out. I think we can be reminded of two things concerning this darkness. First, like the original creation, God controls the darkness, and from the darkness, he will bring light. The second thing, like the plagues of Egypt, God controls the darkness, and from the darkness brings judgment. It is a sign of judgment. In this moment, the cosmos bows its head in shame and grief and weeps for the sins of his people and the work of the sin bearer. The second note within the passage are the cries. 
there are true cries noted. In verse 46, it reads, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus seems to be expressing here what author Philip Yancey describes as a grave sense of estrangement, as though some inconceivable split had opened up in the Godhead. The Son is now being separated from the Father and the Spirit. The cry comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the great messianic psalms in the Old Testament. And what David shows us in shadow form, Jesus embodies as substance. And because of our Lord's use of this psalm, it has been entitled the Psalm of the Cross. When he cries out, Eli, Eli, it reminds the nation of Elijah. Some would suggest that the statements made by those watching and hearing is a taunt. It's insulting. And yet I believe that in this moment, the Trinity encounters something that it had not previously known or will ever know again. They are perhaps thinking that before the Messiah comes, Elijah must first come. There is really no way of explaining what is taking place in that utterance. It is beyond our human comprehension. It is a mystery, and we are foolish to think we can fully understand and absorb this moment when Jesus Christ would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been forsaken because of our sin. Yet Jesus, in his sacrificial and substitutionary death, fully absorbs all the wage my sin justly earned and deserved. He did for me what I could not do for myself. He bore my sins. Jesus, as sin bearer, takes upon himself what you and I justly deserve. This is the wage of sin. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But there is a second cry within the text. It's found in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John 19.30 says that what Jesus uttered was, it is finished. There is nothing in the forsaking and now in this utterance that does not speak to the profound mystery of what was transpiring in this moment. Just as the wages of sin is death, so also are the wages of sin sacrifice. From of old we learn that without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sin. It is impossible for us to understand the thoroughness of God's treatment of sin. Anytime we wonder how severe our sin is, we must go back to the cross. In this moment, and what is about to unfold with his resurrection and ascension, the final death blow has been delivered to death and sin for the sake of his people. God has thoroughly dealt with the sin issue. The third sign within our text is found in verses 51 through 53. It says, And behold, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There are three signs that are noted in this text. And why are they exceptional? You have the curtain torn, the rocks split, and the dead raised. Someone has concluded that the size and thickness of the curtain ensured that no one could accidentally fall into the Holy of Holies as the veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and was about one inch thick and was so massive and heavy that it took 300 priests to manipulate it so there was no way that someone could inadvertently trip and stumble into the Holy of Holies and subsequently die as a result. In the renting of the veil, a new era of approaching God by humanity has been ushered in. 
If Jesus Christ was what he said he was, if his death was what he declared it to be, then it is fitting that the curtain separating God from humanity would be torn top to bottom. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We are now in Christ acceptable before the Father, and we have access to the Father. In Christ, the believer is accepted, and in Christ, the believer has access. The second sign are the rocks splitting. Our passage in verse 51 uses two words, seismo and schizo. A seismograph measures earthquakes and schizophrenic. The earthly trauma speaks of a terrible and horrific judgment that is taking place, and such cosmic shaking is indicative of God's unfathomable movement. God is moving in the death of the sun. And the third sign within our text is the dead were raised. The dead raised speaks of end-time events. The graves were opened, and many bodies of saints which slept arose. To whom they appeared, in what manner, and how they disappeared, we are not told. The dreadful appearance of God and his providence stands as an immutable witness. This was expressed in the terror that fell upon the centurion and the Roman soldiers. I had opportunity recently to speak on this passage with the Iwana children, and I asked the question, what happened when Jesus died? And one of the little kids raised their hand. I called on them, and they said, well, the believing came up from the grave and walked around. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I'm so pleased that a parent or church took the time to teach the kids such truth. They turned them to Matthew 27. It's impossible to for me to fully fathom all that took place on that day, just as it is for you. But on that day, the curtain was rent top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, and the believing dead were raised. The fourth sign that we see in our passage is found in verse 54. It says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they felt that. They were filled with awe, and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Why is this confession exceptional? And in this moment, the cross had its first converts. From beginning to end, the very structure of the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God. We can reject the testimony, but we cannot reject what Matthew is saying. At climactic points, Jesus is so identified by God the Father at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration, by demons, by his disciples by Peter, even by Jesus himself, and now by a Roman centurion and several soldiers. Truly, this was the Son of God. Everything in Matthew and in this moment points to one conclusion. Jesus is the Son of God. He voluntarily and sacrificially and substitutionarily becomes for us what we could never become for ourselves. The final note are the witnesses in verses 55 and 56. It says there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That same group will be present at his resurrection. But the witnesses are exceptional. And why are these witnesses exceptional? Well, first and foremost, they were all women. The celebrated 12, of whom we read much, all left. And standing alone and against the hell of that moment were his women disciples. 
It is considered common knowledge in that historical context that women have little to no credibility as witnesses in a legal setting. And yet, the Gospels weave them into the narrative. We must not forget that it was a woman who anointed Jesus' head with oil in preparation for his burial. It was a woman who urged her husband, Pontius Pilate, to stand against the power of the mob and spare an innocent man's life. The women were the ones to stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus breathed his last. The women were the first to arrive at the tomb to anoint the body of their Lord with oils and spices. And the women were the first to witness the resurrection. The women were the first individuals to be entrusted with taking the good news of Christ's resurrection to the disciples. The women came, they saw, they went, and they told others what they had seen just as Christ had asked them to do. If Passion Week is a song, then this paragraph is a stanza. And in that stanza, there are these five notes. And these five notes remind us of God's song sung by his people on this day. And on this day, that song is a song of sorrow and suffering. Everything from Genesis through Malachi has ended. It culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what God intended to do, Jesus accomplished and achieved. In the death of Jesus, all the pictures and promises find their fulfillment. Every shadow finds their substance in Jesus. In his death, sin is defeated and death will be no more. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And as the fulfillment of the seed promise, he is the second Adam. He is the new Israel, the greater than Moses, the better sacrifice. And he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Matthew says to us on this day that Jesus Christ is indeed enough. The gospel isn't about God being fair. The gospel is about God being generous. And at the cross, we see the great generosity of God. And we have only one hope, and his name is Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be our substitution. He has done for us what we could never and cannot do for ourselves. And we are woefully inadequate in giving you praise and thanksgiving at a time like this. You took our sin and you placed it on your Son. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you give us his righteousness, his very life. And Father, we can say thank you. And with gratitude, we do pray in the very name of Jesus. Amen.